Father in heaven, what can we say? We don't call you reckless, but your love is in this regard. While we were still still sinners, Christ died for us. You took a huge risk, a huge risk that we wouldn't respond. Your love is fierce. Your love never ends. Your love is powerful. You take a risk. You put yourself out there before we did. What can we say? We're thankful. We owe you our lives. Thank you for letting us worship you and sing to you this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. At the beginning of this year, our church adopted a word, a phrase, actually, that we hoped as we lived into that phrase that it would transform the way that we see God, the way that we see others, the way that we see our world, and the way that we see the needs in our world. In January, the way that we approached this concept of looking up was really very similar to the way that the blind man started to see when Jesus first healed him. He saw things, but it looked like trees walking around. He he didn't see clearly. And so during communion for the month of January, we spent our our time focusing on the ways that we see but maybe don't see as clearly as we should, as clearly as God wants us to see, not always seeing things as they actually are. In the month of February, we're going to shift our look-up focus to prayer. If we look at the example of Scripture, often we can see that Jesus' posture during prayer was eyes open and looking up, looking up to heaven. Now, for many of us, in both public prayer settings or perhaps more privately at the dinner table, we've heard the phrase, bow your heads, close your eyes, it's time to pray. But it seems as if the posture of Jesus would say something different, something more along the lines of, lift your head, open your eyes, raise your hands up, because we are about to talk to God. Incredible. Amazing. The posture that we adopt can mean a lot of different things, and there are many different postures of prayer, to be sure. Perhaps closing our eyes helps, to, helps us to eliminate some distractions, and uh, bowing our heads or even going on our knees can indicate uh, an attitude of humility. But there are other postures, too. Today we're going to look at the posture of a man named Samuel, who prayed lying flat on his back as the voice of God broke through the darkness and called out to him. We're going to look at the posture of a woman named Hannah, whose posture is described as standing, but while she prayed, she wept bitterly. It was a posture of anguish. You can almost see her shoulders drooping over as she prayed. Our physical posture is often an indication of our mood, our attitude, that that posture that exists inside of our spirit. So while it's true that our outer posture can 
can indicate how we're feeling, the opposite is also true. The way that we pray, the posture that we adopt, can influence our mood or the posture of our spirit. So what might looking up do? How might that impact our posture, our spirit, our soul? Well, for one, looking up makes us aware of the presence of God, that he is very present and very real, as real as the person standing or sitting next to me. He's there. He's present. Looking up, well, who looks up? Small children. Small children look up. Well, why do they do that? Because everyone is taller than they are. Mom is taller. Dad is taller. And so that act of looking up reminds us, can remind us, that God, our Father, he's taller than we are. In a very real sense, he's bigger than we are. He's grander than we are. He is our superior. We don't look down when we, when we pray to God or look down on him ever. Of course not. We look up to him. He is our chief. Well, how else might looking up affect our posture? Well, looking up helps to remind us that we should be praying as Jesus prayed, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. May the way things exist in your kingdom be the way that they exist here too. We're looking up to you in expectation, in longing for the one who gives good gifts to give a good gift to us. Looking up is a posture of expectation, of longing. So I wonder, would you join me as we spend the month of February looking up as we pray and observe how does it change your attitude towards yourself in the presence of God? How does it change your attitude towards God as well? In a few moments, what we're going to do is uh, we'll have the Lord's Prayer on the screen. We're going to take our moment of silence. But join me this time in raising your eyes, raising your head, looking up toward heaven, spending our moment of silence that way. See what it does to your inner posture. We'll conclude our time reading the Lord's Prayer together or reciting the Lord's Prayer together. There'll be four stations or six stations throughout the room that we can go and partake of communion. Two at the front, two on the stage that are gluten-free, and two in the back. So let's spend uh, a few moments. Would you, would you please stand with me for a moment? Join me in looking up, and let's just let's spend a few moments in silence, uh, and we'll end our time reciting the Lord's Prayer. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory ever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been working our way through the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's been interesting to see how a lot of the stories 
weave together and play together. And today we're going to focus our time in the book of 1 Samuel. I love 1 Samuel. It's a great book. It's a great historical book that uh, we, we can use to learn a lot about prayer. Actually, as it happens, the book of 1 Samuel is a case study in prayer. And we're going to look at three different individuals today and see kind of what they do and how they respond. We're going to look at a woman named Hannah uh, and just the, the way that she prayed and the lessons that we can glean from her life. We're going to look at the man who was the priest at the time, whose name was Eli, uh, and how he did some things that were, were good and other things that were really not good. And we're finally going to take a look at Samuel as well and see how he listened, how he was tuned in uh, to the Spirit of God. It probably goes without saying that prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. It's essential for spiritual health. And this book is going to help us to to unpack a little bit of what we can learn about prayer, both talking to God from us to him and listening, listening to him as well, receiving from him. The prayer life of Hannah is a profound example of honest and passionate prayer. The story of Samuel also gives us some insight to prayer in a different way uh, because we learn about listening to God and how to hear and recognize his voice. God longs to be in a close relationship with each of his children. Get this. He wants to hear from us even more than we want to talk to him. He wants to talk to you He wants to talk to me. He wants to talk to us even more than we want to talk to him. So are you ready to dig into 1 Samuel? Let's do it. The book of 1 Samuel opens with a pair of women named Hannah and Penina. Hannah and Penina were both married to the same man. These two women were part of a culture where men would often have more than one wife. This is called polygamy. There is no indication in the Bible that polygamy was part of God's plan. Rather, it was a part of many pagan cultures, and unfortunately, some of God's people adopted pagan practices. Now, at times, people will look and say, well, why doesn't the Bible say immediately after indicating that these two women were in a relationship with with one man, why doesn't it say, well, that was wrong? Well, we need to remember something that Dennis taught us early on. This is a historical book. We're not going to get a parenthetical comment after each wrong thing that was done saying this was wrong. God's already revealed his plan earlier in Scripture. So as we study through the Old Testament, we discover that there are no examples of happy polygamous families. Grand total, zero, not one. People in polygamous marriages faced rivalry, bitterness, favoritism, and ongoing conflict in their homes. Over and over in the Old Testament, we see examples of how this kind of arrangement flat out does not work. God clearly never intended his people to enter into polygamous relationships. His plan was and is for one man to be in a covenant relationship with one woman for a lifetime. And they are to become one flesh. We see this in the very beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis, where where Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. 
And when Eve is brought to Adam, Adam declares, At last, this one, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman, woman, because she was taken out of man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. God already told us what his plan was. He doesn't need to say it again. God's intent is monogamy, male, female, lifetime covenant partnership. But that's not what's going on in 1 Samuel. These two wives, Hannah and Penina, as you might imagine, were not good friends. They go through years of family life filled with conflict. And early on, Penina gets pregnant and gives birth to a little baby. She is blessed with children again and again. Whereas Hannah stands off in the wings, watching and wondering if she will ever hold a child in her arms. 1 Samuel 1 emphasizes the extended time of waiting twice, two times, to help us see how long this painful process goes on for Hannah, year after year after year. We're not talking child, we're talking children. Long time. Hannah goes through the trauma of infertility, which is always painful, but in her culture, Barrenness carried the added pain of people assuming that she was under a curse from God. If she couldn't bear children, that there was some, some curse that she was living under because she must have offended God in some way. People would look at Hannah and wonder that. In ancient times, there was a huge stigma associated with infertility. Well, to make matters worse, Penina mocks Hannah's misery. Perhaps because she knows Elkanah loves Hannah more than her. When Elkanah and his family go to Shiloh to worship, he gives portions of the meat to Penina and portions of the meat to her children. But to Hannah, double portion. Why? Because he loves her more. In other words, Penina, though she has children, is not cherished and is not loved in the same way that Hannah is sort of harkens back to the relationship Jacob had with Leah. Penina knows this, and it must have eaten away at her soul. Hannah is the woman who possesses what Penina wants most of all in the world, the love of her husband. Penina is a raving success in the childbearing department, and Hannah is empty. So Penina seems to rub this in Hannah's face every chance that she has. Now, Hannah shows no sign of striking back, but she does get depressed. We can see that clearly. She weeps. She will not eat. Because she has no children, Hannah is living in the depth of despair. On top of her sorrow is the constant provoking of Penina. Hannah's miserable. She's hurting. Sorrow fills her heart. Her husband loves her and wants to do something to cheer her up. However, his response is really more of an attempt at a fix than at true empathy. In 1 Samuel 1.18, uh, we read, Elkanah says, Why are you crying, Hannah? Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? I mean, come on, baby. What could be better? You're with me. What's he saying? How can you be sad? You got me. Well, the truth is, she doesn't really even have all of him. 
for she has to share her husband with another woman and her children. We can learn something from this moment. Have you ever faced a situation where you were trying to console someone whose heart was hurting deeply? Have you struggled with knowing what are the right words? What do I say in this spot? When we have no idea what to say, the best thing sometimes to do is to simply be present and listen. Our presence is often the best gift that we can give. Elkanah would have been better off just sitting with his life, with his wife, and sharing in her pain. I want you to remember this little statement. You'll get a lot more mileage out of empathy than explanation. Empathy is being aware of the feelings of another person, being sensitive to their hurt, and meeting them emotionally at their point of pain. When a husband leaves, or a spouse dies, or a child has a really hard time in school, our temptation is to try to explain the pain away. Don't worry, you're better off without him. We might say, hey, he's in heaven. How can you feel bad about that, right? Or don't worry, honey, school will get better. Just hang in there. You just have to apply yourself a little bit more. We would do well to remember the response that we have when we read Elkanah's words to Hannah. Hey, baby, you got me. What could be better? I mean, when we read that, we have this response of, oh, how could you miss it in such a huge way? So when we're tempted to offer glib explanations like this, let's remember how we felt when we hear Elkanah's response to Hannah. And instead of choosing explanation, let's choose empathy instead. The truth is that explanations do little for people in pain. At that point, they're not necessarily looking for a logical answer. They're looking for someone to share their grief and say, wow, that must really hurt. Boy, you must really feel lonely, or I can understand why you're frustrated and disappointed. Presence is often the best gift that we can give to people in a time of suffering. Words can be of help if they're sensitive and chosen with wisdom, but simply being with those who are suffering is often the best thing that we can do. You'll get a lot more mileage out of empathy than explanation. Well, Hannah really has nowhere else to go except to God. Penina is far more likely to taunt her than to offer compassion. Elkanah loves her, but he's just not really dialed in to her deepest needs. So Hannah turns to the only place she can go. She turns to God out of her hurt, her pain, and her disappointment. And even though we don't get her exact words, her prayer becomes one of the great examples of prayer in all of Scripture. The depth of Hannah's emotional honesty in prayer is an example that we can all follow. In bitterness of soul, Hannah comes before the Lord. She comes with tears. She comes with brokenness. She comes with a transparent heart. She comes as she is rather than trying to, to mask or hide the condition of her heart. When we experience deep bitterness of soul, confusion, disappointment, and sorrow, we must come before God as we are. He's not surprised 
And he's never offended by our honesty. Hannah holds nothing back. Through her tears, she speaks to God of her misery, her trouble, her anguish, and her grief. And she learns that honesty in prayer is not only permissible, it's preferred. It's what God wants. As we watch the example of Hannah, we should make a decision to be honest in our prayers. Hannah did it. We can too. Holding back the truth from God is foolishness because he already sees our heart. He knows it anyway. God invites our sorrow, our pain, our struggles, and even our anger. It is often through these so-called negative emotions that we are motivated to search for God and find him. Well, as we look at Hannah, she is clearly misunderstood by so many in her life. She's pouring out her heart in prayer, and even the priest Eli misunderstands her. The priest Eli accuses her of being drunk. Talk about feeling misunderstood. Now, we can't be too quick to judge Eli, at least in this situation, because Hannah's silent prayer catches his attention because in those days, the Israelites usually prayed out loud. This was true in private prayer and in public prayer as well. And it, it is still a common practice in Middle Eastern society to this day. So when Eli sees Hannah moving her lips, but no sound coming out of her mouth, it looks odd. It looks strange. And he jumps to the conclusion, well, she must be a drunken person rather than someone who is praying. But she is not drunk. Rather, she is deeply troubled in soul and is calling out to God from a place of inexpressible grief. Hannah lets Eli know that she's not drunk, but is seeking God with a broken heart that has just run out of words. Her heart cries out, but Hannah never stops praying. What is so encouraging about this story is that Eli assures Hannah that her prayer will be answered. She has continued to seek the face of God with humble tenacity. She has not given up on her dream, and now she gets the answer. It will be months before the child is born, but God, through Eli, gives her a promise that she will be granted what she has asked for. We can learn a lot from this powerful woman of God. God desires honest prayer. He wants us to be real before him and pour out whatever is on our, our, on our heart. And persistence in prayer makes a difference. Jesus told a wonderful parable in Luke chapter 11 that reinforces this concept. Luke 11, definitely worth uh, reading. Reinforces this idea that Asking, being persistent again and again uh, matters. We should keep on praying even when our situation might seem hopeless. Now, when Eli tells Hannah that God will grant her what she asks, she believes. In faith, she believes. Eli utters just a few words and Hannah's whole disposition changes. She eats a good meal. Her countenance has changed. Her face looks different. Instead of discouragement, she's filled with a new emotion, one she probably hasn't experienced for a very long time. Hope. 
Just one sentence from Eli and her world transforms. Why? Because Hannah believes in prayer and God's promise through Eli. She is certain that she will have a child. Hannah's response to the good news that God gives through Eli is to worship. We read that the entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then, after God's promise is realized months later, Hannah lifts up a prayer of praise and thanksgiving that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 2. God chooses to devote a whole section of Scripture to recording Hannah's prayer of, of thanks, not on her prayer of need. How interesting, how interesting that more time is spent in the biblical record on Hannah's thanksgiving prayer than on her petition. God cares about our level of thankfulness. He wants us to be devoted to celebrating the great things that he does. We need to learn from the example of Hannah and commit to being serious about saying thank you to the one who has given us every good gift that we have ever received. Thankfulness is learned. It does not come naturally. Think about it. How many times have you had to coax your child to offer appreciation for a gift? Unwrap the gift, wrapping papers on the floor. Now, what do you say? And the expected response, of course, is a thank you. No child is born with a thankful spirit. No. Parents have to teach a child to be thankful. It is thankfulness that must be nurtured in the human heart in the same way. In much the same way, our Heavenly Father wants His children to learn to be thankful. And there are seasons of our lives where God might coax us by saying, now what do you say? But there are other times as we grow, as we mature in our our walk with Him, that thankfulness should erupt spontaneously from our hearts because of what God has done. This portion of the Bible focuses a lot on Hannah, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't focus on her exclusively. And while the lessons we learn from Hannah teach us a little bit about how we communicate with God, we can also learn about how we listen to God. Eli is the priest in Israel at the time that Hannah uh, is offering her prayer. And in this case, It is God who is trying to get Eli's attention, not Eli who is attempting to speak to God. Eli the priest has two sons, Hophni Hophni and Phinehas. And as we read through 1 Samuel, we quickly learn that things are not going well in the house of Eli. His boys are wicked and do not honor the Lord. These two boys are about as unattractive figures as we can find in the Old Testament. They serve in God's house, but they extort people's offerings for their own selfish gain. Imagine coming to a place of worship where the clergy are stealing the offerings for themselves and using violence to force people to give even more. These two men, Eli's sons, also shamefully sleep with the women who serve in that place. God is deeply troubled by the hearts and lives of Eli's sons. We read, So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, 
for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. The problem is that Eli does not take their sin as seriously as God does. When Eli learns what his sons are doing, he confronts them-ish. But as we look at the way that he does it, the way he speaks to his sons is staggering. In 1 Samuel 2, we read, Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for, his, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who, who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I have been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you are doing. Why do you keep on sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. Really? That's all you have? That's all you're going to offer in correction? In light of what his sons have done and are continuing to do, this is a lame response from Eli. It's unbelievable. Think about it. The poor are being ripped off. The weak are being oppressed. The women are being violated. And it is all being done by his sons in God's name. And Eli is the priest responsible over these two wolves in sheep's clothing. It is his job to serve and protect the people and to make sure that God is honored. So what does he do with his sons? He doesn't punish them. He doesn't remove them from office. He doesn't even force them to make amends. He just gives them a stern talking to. That's it. That's all he has to offer in the way of discipline. They're guilty of greed, theft, extortion, violence, abuse of power, and sexual misconduct. And Eli says, it's not a good report that I'm hearing here. What an understatement. One has to wonder, what would a bad report look like? What do we have to do? Now, as we read this section of Scripture, it is a little bit tempting at this point to think that Eli's just trying to be a nice guy. Because he is a godly man, we may want to make excuses for him. But Scripture gives us insight into what is really going on with Eli here. The text indicates that Eli does not want to know the whole truth about his sons. Because if he knows the details, he'll have to act to restrain them. If he has to come in and play the heavy, so to speak, and do some serious discipline, well, his boys might not like him anymore. Things could get unpleasant in Eli's family. If these things are really uncovered and confronted, Eli doesn't want to look up. He wants to bury his head in the sand. Well, God sends a message to confront Eli. This man of God speaks on behalf of the Lord, and he asks Eli, so... Why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat off the best offerings of my people Israel. God knows that Eli prefers prefers avoiding unpleasantness with his sons over doing what is right. His family, in a sense, becomes kind of an idol in his life instead of worshiping the one true God 
It's in, in a way, it's as if he's worshiping his family over God. Eli chooses to keep peace with his sons over honoring his duty to God. For the sake of peace in his family, he chooses to simply look the other way. Now, an important contextual note about the behavior of Eli's sons is related to this whole business of the women who serve at the tent of meeting. We read that Eli's sons slept with these women. Now, most likely what is happening is that his sons are beginning to lead the nation of Israel into the same type of cultic prostitution that was common in the pagan religions of that region of the world. It's not just that Hophni and Phinehas are engaging in sexual relations with prostitutes, which would be bad enough as it it was. They're also leading the whole nation of Israel towards spiritual prostitution by including pagan practices in their worship of the one true God. This may be hard to hear, but if you're a parent with a child heading down the wrong path, don't pull an Eli. Don't look the other way. Don't make excuses. God calls parents to speak the truth in love. At some point, our children may stray. And when they do, the most loving thing to do is sometimes also the hardest thing to do. So if you need to confront, confront. If you must declare unpopular circumstances and consequences, declare them. Because if you don't take the necessary steps of discipline and back down, if you look the other way, the consequences could be bigger than you imagine. Hophni and Phinehas were not long uh, in the house of Eli. Love never hides behind an avoidance of reality. Love always deals with the truth. It always honors God. Eli did not speak the truth and did not bring loving discipline into the lives of his sons. And the consequences were, quite frankly, disastrous. Even when he was warned that if he did not take action, his sons would fall under God's judgment, he did nothing. We need to learn from his poor example and avoid the same fate in our lives and the lives of those we love. And what is that example? When God spoke, Eli's ears were not tuned in. His actions were not aligned with what God said. Now, there is a wonderful weaving together of stories that happens in this portion of the Bible. Because while we're hearing about Eli's sons and their their rebellion, we're also being introduced to Hannah's son. The son that she prayed for, Samuel. He is a young man who is learning to hear the voice of God and faithfully follow it. His heart will be true, and he will speak God's word with boldness. In the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, we see that there are two ways that we can live, especially when it comes to listening to to God. We can hear and respond, or we can hear and not respond. What a dramatic contrast is drawn out for us. Samuel learns some critical life lessons early on in his spiritual journey. Under the mentoring of Eli, he discovers that God really does speak, and those who follow God can hear his voice. It is possible to live a life in partnership with God and be led by God's Spirit. Samuel is growing up in God's house in Shiloh. His mom, Hannah, promised, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. She promised this to God, and she did. 
Hannah sees her boy Samuel only once a year when they visit him in Shiloh. She makes him a new garment each year and comes to see how much he's grown, prays for him, hugs him, and goes back home. Eli and God watch over Samuel. He is raised to serve God all of his life. And one night while he is still a boy, he hears his name called out in the night. Think about what it would be like to have this happen. It actually happened to Samuel. He's lying in his bed and hears his name. He figures it must be Eli. So he runs to Eli's room. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Go to sleep. It happens a second time. He gets up and Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. A third time, the night is broken with a voice. Samuel. There's a clarifying comment that bears inspection. In 1 Samuel 3, we read that Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. Samuel's been around godly people. He lives in, a place of, in the place of worship. His mother has been praying for him, but he has never heard God's voice. Samuel does not yet understand how to discern and recognize God's voice. The maker of heaven and earth is speaking to Samuel and he doesn't even know it yet. The third time Samuel wakes up the old prophet, Eli catches on to what's happening here. He realizes that it is the voice of the Lord calling to Samuel. And so we read, so he said to Samuel, go and lie down again. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. In his book, Hearing God, Dallas Willard coins a great phrase, the ministry of Eli. Eli helps Samuel to discern when God is speaking to him. This wise man of God, although not a great father, does help Samuel. He walks with Samuel and gives him counsel as he learns to recognize the voice of the master. Eli knows that Samuel's life will never be the same once he learns to hear and follow the voice of God and work in partnership with his maker. God is looking for people today, today, who will practice the ministry of Eli. Those in the family of God who recognize the voice of the Savior need to teach the next generation that God still speaks and people can still hear his voice. Those who have learned to hear the voice of the Lord and to follow his leading must make their lives available to help others learn to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. One of the most critical variables in entering into a life of hearing and following the leading of the Holy Spirit is found in, in verse 19. We read that as Samuel grew, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. God let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground, which is a euphemistic phrase, meaning all he said came true. Well, now how is that? He grew in his listening relationship with God to the point where when he spoke, Samuel wasn't merely expressing his own thoughts and opinions. No, he spoke the words of God for God. And think about this. The word in the night that was spoken to Samuel was not a message for Samuel. It was really a message for Eli, a hard message, 
a message of judgment. God starts by saying, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is going to be big news. He tells Samuel, judgment will descend on Eli's house because if Father Eli will not step in and stop his sons, Father God will. We read that the next morning, Samuel was afraid. He was afraid to tell Eli what God has said. Eli said, what was it that he told you? What did God say? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, well, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It's one thing to hear God's message. It's another thing to share it. It's another thing to put it out there. It takes great courage to share a word that God has shared with us. Sometimes hard words need to be heard. May we have the courage and the grace to share them. Even in this act of sharing, Samuel's words did not fall to the ground. Why? Because he spoke the words he heard from God. And God's words never return void. Both Hannah and her son Samuel teach us so many valuable lessons on conversing with the God of, of heaven, our Father in heaven. Sometimes God is looking for us to persist through pain and heartache. Other times, we lay quietly and invite him to speak. God loves to talk to his kids. He wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to me. So let's look up. He's ready to talk with us today. Are we ready to talk with him? Oh, let's do it. Father in heaven, not only do you want to hear from us, you teach us lessons about how to talk with you, about what you want from us, and you are so kind in that you want to know what's really going on inside of us. You don't want us to pretty it up. You don't want us to put on a facade. You want to know us as we are. Pray that as we learn to talk to you and as we learn to listen to you, that your spirit would change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our ushers are coming forward to receive the morning offering. And as they do, I'm going to invite Tristy Carlson uh, to come up here. We've got uh, a women's retreat is coming very, very soon. And uh, this retreat has been really uh, a wonderful event in the life of our community, in the life of our church. And so we wanted Tristy to come up this morning and give us a little bit of uh, uh, some details that we need to know. Okay. Um, so in my conversations with women... I tend to hear a lot about how busy we are and how we want time to connect, but we just don't ever have the time to connect. And so this is a day specifically designed for women to have that time to connect. And so maybe it's, you know, maybe you're one of those people that has a best friend or has a group of friends, and um, this is just a day for you to come connect with them, invite them along. Or maybe you're one of those women who really doesn't have any friends and really would like a friend, and this is specifically designed for you. Mm. I want nothing more than for women to feel like they have a place where they belong. Mm. And um, that's, that's my heart's cry. That's where God's given me the passion. And so 
Um, we have a day, uh, February 16th, in two weeks. It's from 8.30 to 4.30, where women can come and don't have to make a meal. So that's good. You get to come in the morning. We've got the extra space now, so the day's designed a little differently than it's been in the past. Um, you get to come have a light breakfast and some light conversation, and then you get to choose, actually, a breakout in the morning that is a topical breakout on relationships, and you get to choose one of those. And then in the afternoon, after a lunch that's catered from Panera, you get to choose more of a hands-on breakout where you get to have conversations, maybe craft, or um, there's just some really cool opportunities. So if you go to southfieldchurch.com um, and go to news and events, you can pull that up and see the descriptions of the breakouts to choose from. Um, you can also do that if you get the links, the connections on there to click on. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's a great day to connect. It really, if price goes up mm. tomorrow, $10. Mm. So if you can do it today, that's great. Um, again, it's a great time to invite somebody to come along with you. There's a lot of women here who have told me that the women's retreat was like their first time mm. that they felt connected at Southfield. Mm. Um, and that's always an encouragement to my heart. It's why we're offering it again this year, is that we want you to feel connected. Mm. We want you to feel like you belong. Mm. And so we really hope that it's our goal that that is what the day will do for you. And the theme of the retreat is better together, mm. which is designed that we really truly are better when we're together. Oh, thanks, Tristia. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really uh, indicative of what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to do life as a lone ranger. He wants us to be together, to be in community with one another. Because, I mean, after all, a, fam- a church is a family. So uh, definitely, uh, I mean, I wish I could go, but, you know, those are the breaks. So, now, um, a couple other things we need to let you know of. Uh, first of all, there is no Revive tonight. Uh, what we're going to be doing is on Wednesday, both junior high and high school are invited to come together to do kind of a, a, a review, if you will, of Arctic Blast. Uh, not everyone was able to go to Arctic Blast, and there was some great teaching that happened there. And so we want to make sure that we get everyone in the room at the same time. If you're a junior higher, it's normal for you. If you're a high schooler, this is a little different, right? Because you're coming on a Wednesday night instead of on Sunday. So be aware of that. And then finally, we want to let you know that uh, we are going to be offering a couple of different opportunities to get baptized. Uh, we had a, a wonderful uh, uh, participation in the membership seminar a number of weeks ago, and people that have expressed an interest in being baptized. If you're interested in that, uh, please let us know. And one of the ways you can do that, I mean, you can uh, you know, click on the link, say, hey, I want to be baptized. It'll take you to uh, a form. If you want to talk to somebody face-to-face, feel free to grab me or, of course, uh, reach out to someone at the welcome desk, and we'll make sure that we get you all the details for that. Two opportunities uh, to do that. Uh, I think it's the last Sunday in, in February and the first in March, uh, if memory serves. Is it on there? That'd be lovely. Yeah, yes! February 24th and March 3rd. So there you go. Uh, would you please stand with me? I'll close us in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We're excited for this day. Uh, we're thankful uh, to have been here to worship you. Thank you for a super day. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great morning.